0: Well, good morning, Uh, the day after Christmas. What a sweet opportunity for us now to come and sit under God's Word. Um, I had a fantastic time with the family celebrating, and I'm sure uh, you did as well. I know some families in town, for a lot of our church family though, especially the military, they're out with family, and uh, our hope, even if you're watching online, is that you're enjoying a sweet time with uh, family and friends back at home. Well, I decided to uh, take just a little detour away from Philippians and focus a little bit of our attention on the Christ of Christmas. And so this morning I've entitled this message, The Christ of Christmas, and we'll be looking at uh, a very well known passage of scripture in Luke chapter 1. Many of you that were with us uh, at our candlelight service, um, you experienced a sweet time, huh? Singing those songs, even some of those songs we sang again this morning. Uh, A great reminder of why we celebrate Christmas. But has it occurred to you that the vast majority of the world, I'm talking billions of people, they also celebrate Christmas? In fact, uh, some polls were taken, a Gallup poll, Lifeway poll. um, They did some research and they discovered that 9 out of 10 U.S. citizens actually celebrate Christmas. And so when you hear that 9 out of 10, what's that percentage? for all the math majors, and not math majors, 90% of people are really celebrating Christmas. I looked on Spotify this morning uh, at the top 100 Christmas songs, and you start making your way through them, you know, the Frank Sinatra and the Mariah Carey and all these songs about Christmas and White Christmas and Santa's coming to town and all these Christmas songs, but guess what is missing from all of those Christmas songs? Christ, Jesus, Jesus. So what I wanted to do this morning is direct our attention, we spent quite a bit of time uh, this past Friday looking at um, a number of verses, but I wanted just to focus in on this passage in Luke chapter 1. I want us to, with intentionality and focus, fix our eyes on Jesus, understanding that the world, as we know it, is becoming less and less interested in God in the manger No problem buying and selling and celebrating and decorating and going all out for Christmas, but no focus on Jesus. And as believers, we don't want to lose touch with the good news of glad tidings, which is the baby in the manger. You see, I think for many in our world, Christmas has just become somewhat of an archaic holiday, Even when you tell people Merry Christmas, they respond to you, not with Merry Christmas, but with Happy Holidays. It's almost like they're correcting us. But we want to focus our attention on Jesus this morning, the Jesus that's been forgotten in a lot of ways, replaced by Santa, and disgraced among many people in the world. As God's people, it's imperative, it's crucial for us to understand the The depth, the profundity of the miracle of Christmas. And we need to know this Jesus, and we need to unabashedly celebrate him and sing about him and proclaim him. So I'm grateful for our time this morning. Why don't you look at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1 and follow me as I read. Here's God's word to us this morning. Luke writes, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Oh, Father, would you please help us this morning to fix our eyes on Jesus and to marvel at the miracle of his birth? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there in verses 31 through 33, we have... Gabriel's five-fold description of the Christ we celebrate during Christmas. If we are to worship the Christ of Christmas in spirit and in truth, then we must know him. And so what I want to do is I want to go back to this announcement that was given to Mary and listen with eager ears all that God promised that Jesus would be. So our outline is very simple. It's coming right out of the text. If you're taking notes, then you want to jot this down. We're going to first look at his identity. His name is Jesus. Then we're going to look at his supremacy. Gabriel says he will be great. Then we'll look at his divinity. He will be called the son of the most high. Then his sovereignty. He will have the throne of his father, David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And then what we'll call eternality that his kingdom will have no end. It will last forever. His identity, his supremacy, his divinity, his sovereignty, his eternality, all of it coming right out of the text. Well, last week, you remember, we looked at five characteristics of Epaphroditus, and we called him a faithful servant from Philippians 2. Paul said there that Epaphroditus is a brother and a fellow worker and a fellow soldier, and he is your messenger and minister to my needs. And last week, you might remember what I said was, there's very few places in Scripture that commend someone in such a short amount of space. All that commendation just in one verse. Well, very similar to what we looked at last week, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and heaps on glory after glory after glory about the Christ child and all that he'll be. Now, next week, we'll return to Philippians 2. We'll continue to study Epaphroditus But here's the honest truth. We will exhaust Epaphroditus. There's not much more to say after next week. But when it comes to Jesus, that doesn't happen. You realize this. If you were in Christ this morning, you will have all of eternity to get to know Jesus better. And you still won't even scratch the surface. That is how great he is. That is how profound he is. Well, let me provide you with just a little bit of context as we kind of parachute into Luke's gospel here. It's helpful to know, as you open up the beginning of Luke, that the first half of Luke establishes Jesus' unique identity. And we see that in the first nine chapters. So we see these unique features in Luke chapter 1 and 2, you have the unique births. And then in chapters 3 and 4, you have Jesus' unique qualifications for ministry, And in four through nine, you have Jesus's unique power and authority. And Luke continues to put this before us that, wow, this is the son of man. He is unique. There is no one like him. And all throughout Luke's gospel, what we see is these unique titles. Luke calls him the son of God, the son of man, the son of David, Christ, the king of the Jews, and others. But the uniqueness that we see here in the first chapter is super unique. A virgin giving birth? It's actually supposed to jolt us that a young virgin, age 13 or 14, has conceived, but not conceived with a man, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the baby that's born is the God-man, Jesus, And that God-man has come to save his people. That is the message of the Bible. And you go all the way back to Genesis 3 just to see how it's all one unit. Genesis 3, we learn that there would be a seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin. Then when you get to Genesis chapter 22, we read that the seed is to be the seed of Abraham. You get to Daniel 7, and that seed is to be the son of man. You get to Psalm 2, and that seed is the son of God. And then you start to scratch your head and say, wait a second, I have some questions here. How can the seed of a woman, or how can the seed come from a woman when seed doesn't come from woman? How can this seed be the son of man and be the son of God? How can this seed come forth from Abraham and from David, and from God all at the same time. I mean, this sounds like a Rubik's Cube complexity of prophecy here. How can God be man? And how can man be God? How can one be the son of man and yet have no human father? And I think you can come up with more questions. All of those, I think, are answered here in Luke 1. See, as believers, we say yes. There's no problem. There's no difficulty. There's no confusion with the prophecy. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. He is the seed of the woman. He is the son of man. He's of the line of Abraham. He's the line of David. Everything begins to come into focus as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And so let's do that now by looking there at verse 31. First again, his identity. His identity. Luke says, and behold, Gabriel talking to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now, I want you to notice that everyone gets to name their kids. You named your kids. Someone else didn't name your kids, hopefully. But that was not the case for Mary and Joseph, and it was not the case for Zachariah and Elizabeth. These two babies that we are introduced to in Luke 1, they're named by God himself. Both sets of parents were commanded by the angel to give them specific names. And God, listen, he wasn't very subtle in what he named them. John means Yahweh is gracious. And Jesus, in the Greek, Iesu, in the Hebrew, Yeshua, it means Yahweh saves. God is gracious, Yahweh saves. Now, John's name expresses the heart of God. You say, well, what is Yahweh like? Well, he's gracious. He's gracious. His mercy precedes judgment. And so before sending the Messiah to judge the world, he sends a forerunner to prepare hearts to receive the Messiah so they would not be judged. And the Messiah's name, Yahweh saves, God is making it very clear there's no ambiguity here. Zero, what Mary was commanded to call him and his calling are inseparable. You see, the Lord wanted to make explicitly clear that Jesus's name would perfectly match his ministry. So in a very simple but super profound naming, Gabriel gave Mary both his name and his mission. You see, Jesus was born to save his people. And that name, Yeshua, it's just Joshua. Everyone would have thought back to Joshua, the predecessor of Moses, or the succeeder of Moses. Remember Joshua, he led Israel into the promised land. And in that day, when Joshua led them out, he saved his people, God's people, physically, by giving them their land and ending their years of wilderness wandering but listen, Jesus doesn't save in that way. That was the expectation. That was the hope. For for years, Israel had been under oppression, going all the way back to Egypt, and then uh, Assyria in 722, and then Babylon in 586, and then Rome in the first century. They were always oppressed and always looking for their deliverer, the promised Messiah, who would come as their king and reign, defeat their enemies and free them forever. But Jesus doesn't save in the way that many people anticipated. He didn't save Israel from their military enemies. You say, but didn't he save people from illness and sickness? And of course, we we see that all throughout Scripture. But physical deliverance, deliverance from sickness, was not his primary deliverance. His saving ministry was much larger than that. The salvation that he would bring was part of God's eternal restoration of all things. And so Psalm 130 in verse 7 reads this, O Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. Verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities, from her sins. You see, God cares about salvation from enemies and from disease and from death. Jesus wept over what death did. But behind that, underlying that, is Jesus came to defeat the thing that brought about death, which was sin. And so with the arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem, the problem that lie at the root of all the pains and sorrows and sufferings of this world, that little baby came to deal with that with sin. And later, when the angel visits Joseph, because remember, Joseph does not know what's going on, but what he identifies here is, wait a second, my my girl, my lady, my love here, she's pregnant, and that wasn't with me. Joseph needs some explaining. Lucy, you got some explaining to do. So Joseph's looking at Mary, what's going on here? And the angel Gabriel comes to him, It makes a very clear statement. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. But when he had considered this, this is Joseph kind of taking this all in. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, and she will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. You see, what Gabriel announces to Joseph here is unmistakable. The reason God the Father gave Jesus the name Jesus is because he would bring about salvation for his people from the power and penalty of sin. Now, fast forward nine months. And here in Luke chapter 2, the angel appears again, this time to the shepherds in Luke 2.11. And the angel says this, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And if you go down to verse 30 of chapter 2, we see, That this is what the people of God were waiting for, for salvation. In Luke 2.30, Simeon takes Jesus into his arms. And you can just see this old man taking the baby into his arms and weeping and full of joy and looking at his little eyes. And what does Simeon say? For my eyes have seen your salvation. And later on in Paul's epistle, we see this as he writes to Timothy. He says, it is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world. And again, we ask the question why did he come into the world? To save sinners. This is why Jesus was born. He is a savior, he is a savior of sinners. His name, his mission, is the greatest need of all mankind. It was back then, and it is today as we get ready to flip the calendar to 2022. The world needs nothing more than Jesus to save them from their sins. Well, it shouldn't come as a surprise then that this savior has come from God because God's heart, Yahweh's heart has always been to save. In Isaiah 43, verse 11, we read this. I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior beside me. So listen, if we're going to be calling Jesus the Savior, but in the New Testament, over and over again, God says, I am the only Savior, well, now we've got a problem. Which one of you is lying? Well, no one is, because Jesus is God. Because God, being the Savior that he is, came down to earth to do the saving himself. And that right there is what makes him so supreme. So point number one, he is the Savior. Point number two, he is supreme. Verse 32, Gabriel says, he will be great. That's such an understatement. I even sounded like Tony the Tiger right there, huh? Tony the Tiger, they're great. Uh, Saying Jesus is great is not the same thing as saying the donuts this morning are great or this coffee is great. But we've so devalued that word When the Bible says that he will be great, we must understand that we can never plumb the depths of Jesus' greatness. But we're going to try. Four words so profound, so majestic, so deep, he will be great. See, Gabriel's not talking about everyday type of greatness. This is transcendent greatness. This is unrivaled greatness. Think about all the great people you know personally. And then think about all the great people that you don't know personally. I went and looked up, I think on Wikipedia, the, the top 100 great people. And they're all people with the name great in it. So let me just throw some names at you. Ramesses II, apparently he was great of Egypt. Cyrus, the great of Persia, he's actually in the Bible. Alexander. Okay, now that one, you say Alexander and someone says Alexander the Great of Macedonia. There's Herod the Great. He's not too great. We don't like Herod. But he's called Herod the Great of Judea. Catherine the Great of Russia. Charlemagne, also known as Charles the Great of France and the Holy Roman Empire. Frederick II, don't know that guy, but he was the Great of Prussia. I've got to study my world history here. Genghis Khan, he was called Khan the Great of Mongolia. All those people are dead. And I got to go to Wikipedia or my history book to learn about them because I forgot about them. You start studying people who are quote unquote great and you realize no one compares to Jesus. Jesus and his greatness are beyond compare. Charles Spurgeon says, Is it not proven that he is great? Conquerors are great, and he is the greatest of them. Deliverers are great, and he is the greatest of them. Liberators are great, and he is the greatest of them. Saviors are great, and he is the greatest of them. They that multiply the joys of men are truly great. And what shall I say of him who has bestowed everlasting joy upon his people? And notice here that this greatness is not just a thing Sure, all that Jesus did was great. His miracles, his teaching, his healings, his acts of compassion and mercy, his perfect life of obedience. We look at all that and say, that is just so great. But the greatness here that's described as intrinsic, it's Jesus himself. He exudes greatness. He manifests and magnifies the Father's attributes so that when you see Jesus, you see God perfectly. Do you want to hear God speak? Then listen to Jesus. What we have in Jesus is the perfect picture of the Father. He performed miracles that only God can perform. He taught with the authority that only God has. And everything that comes from Jesus, his wisdom, his goodness, his holiness, his righteousness, his omniscience, all of it, All of it speaks of his greatness. So it's not just, hey, little baby Jesus in the manger. No, that's God in the manger. And this greatness was prophesied about. Look at Micah chapter 5. Long ago, Micah writes this. But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphratha, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth For me, to be the ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in childbirth has born a child. Then the remainder of his brothers will return to the sons of Israel, and he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they will remain And watch this, because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. It's not something new. It's not something that was made up. A bunch of Jewish people just didn't get together one night and go to the chalkboard and say, hey, let's come up with some myth. This was from long ago, prophesied, promised, all coming to fruition right here in Bethlehem. Now, we do need to point this out because John the Baptist is also called great. Did you notice that there in chapter one? In fact, when you look at John's birth and Jesus' birth, there's lots of parallels, right? Both of them have their births announced by an angel. That's fantastic. That would be great. Zachariah and Mary both have an initial fear response. There's humility there. That's great. Elizabeth and Mary experience a seemingly impossible pregnancy. Old women do not get pregnant, and certainly virgins don't get pregnant. They were both given a promise about the child's future and identity. But even as you look at those similarities between John and Jesus, it was clear, it was beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Mary's child was to be greater. See, Jesus, he's not a forerunner. John was a forerunner of who? The Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Oh, how vastly different was their greatness. In fact, we learn this about John. We know that he's the greatest man ever to be born up to this point. And in Luke 1.15, it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he takes a Nazarite vow. He's not going to drink any wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's in his mother's womb. But notice there in Luke 1.15, there's a qualifier there. It says, John is great in the sight of or before the Lord. There are no qualifiers when it comes to Jesus. He is just great. Listen to John's own testimony about his cousin in John 3, verse 28. He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And then the famous passage that we all know in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Oh, what a gigantic difference between the two. Let me just ask you this morning, church. What do you consider great? Any of you been to any great locations? Jess and I, were coming up on our 20-year wedding anniversary. You can, yeah, you can say okay or you cheer a little something. something. And we had these great plans to celebrate our 20th, but COVID is kind of Messed all that up. But we wanted to go see some sweet stuff. And I don't know where that was, but we, we talked about Go to Italy, go to, go to Switzerland, go, go to outer space. What do we want to do? Like, let's, let's go enjoy God's beautiful creation. Anything that you see here on planet Earth, or if we get in these rocket ships and go into outer space, whatever it is that you see, do you realize Jesus created that? You talk about greatness. I was watching that movie Interstellar a few days ago just marveling at what's in outer space the span of his hand no problem at all Jesus created it Colossians 1:16 says for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him how about people What about great people, famous people, great athletes, great musicians, someone who's the greatest at what they do? Jesus created them too, every single human being. So who's greater? Uh, Again, I'm not a, uh, sort of I am. I'm, I'm kind of a Golden State fan. I like Steph Curry. My son likes Steph Curry. He's always dribbling, to Steph Curry, Steph Curry. Steph Curry, for those of you that don't know, he broke the three-point record, and he broke Ray Allen's three-point record, and Ray Allen broke Reggie Miller's three-point record. All those guys are still alive. It's like, and they're talking about all this, the, no one's going to break Steph Curry's three-point record. Well, just give it some time. How many of you guys know that name Flo-Joe? Anyone know of FloJo? joe Oh, she was an athlete. She was fast. But Allison Felix steps on the scene, and now she's the most decorated track athlete. And all throughout history, you have all these great people only to be surpassed by someone who is greater. That will never, ever happen with Jesus. Never. No one is greater than him. Monarchs, movie stars, musicians, athletes, artists, Politicians all come and go, but not Jesus. Pastor Daryl Ferguson, in talking about the greatness of Jesus says this, and this is a long quote, so bear with me. As God, he was equal with the Father, infinite, immeasurable, incomprehensible, unfathomable, unsearchable, unmatched in love, perfect in wisdom, unlimited in power, unequaled in greatness, infinite in holiness, staggering in majesty. His glory fills the universe, but the universe cannot contain him. He was never created, never began, never came into existence. From eternity past to eternity future, he always has been and has never changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the great I am, the self-existent one. He is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the ground of all being. The prime mover, the author of life, the great king above all gods. He created all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing ever surprises him. Nothing ever frightens him or worries him. He is incontestably great, great beyond any idea of greatness that has ever dawned on us. He is eternally blessed exalted above all, and forever praised. He is beautiful beyond comprehension, glorious beyond words, and desirable above all earthly pleasure. His judgments are unsearchable, his past beyond tracing out. No one has ever been his counselor, and no one has ever given to him that he should repay, because from him and through him and to him are all things. Who's greater than Jesus? Jesus. No one. He is the Savior. He is supreme in his greatness. But look at what Gabriel says next. He is also divine. Verse 32, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, what does that mean, Son of the Most High? First of all, notice that it's not a son. There are people who want to say that Jesus is a son or a way, but Gabriel says very clearly that he is the Son Now, in one sense, we're all sons and daughters of the Most High, are we not? I'm not going to get a stone and pick it up and try to throw it at you if you say, hey, I'm a son of God. Luke uses that same expression in Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself, the Bible says, is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So in one sense, because you were created by God, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. And for Christians, because we've been adopted by God, we are sons and daughters of God. But Jesus, listen, is different. He's not just a son, but he is the son. You say, but doesn't the son of mean less than? Because, like, this is your dad, and this is your son. And the son is lower than the dad. But that's not the way that they use this. That phrase, son of, in Scripture, when we see that, it never means less than. In semantic thought, a son was the carbon copy of the father. If you are a son of, you're taking on the same attributes. You are the same kind, the same essence. So to be the son means to be of the same kind. He is not a son by creation, like the Jehovah Witnesses would say. He is not a son by adoption. He is a son by his very nature. He is the only, the Bible says, begotten of God. You say, well, why why does the Bible say begotten? I don't use that word begotten. I am begotten of my father. Here, C.S. Lewis will help us. In his book, Mere Christianity, this is what C.S. Lewis writes about begotten. He says this, to beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs, which then turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. So a bird makes a nest, and a beaver builds a dam, and a man makes a radio, or he may make something more like himself, like a statue. But of course, Lewis says, it is not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It is not alive. Now, that is the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man what God creates is not God, just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they are not things of the same kind. How clear is Lewis on beginning? The Bible, when it calls Jesus the Son of the Most High, first of all, you say, What's higher than the Most High? The answer? Nothing. El Elyon. Rather than calling him Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, yod He vav He, they refer to God as El Elyon, God Most High. And we, we know this from our kids. When our kids use words like, hey, I'm, I'm smarter than you. Yeah, well, I'm a hundred times smarter than you. Well, I'm a thousand times smarter, smarter than you. And then comes the, well, let me top that. I am infinity times smarter than you. And then the only way to top that is to be infinity times infinity. But, but this is how the Jews use this word. Because you have all these false gods, these pagan gods, who call themselves gods, and when the Jews would say El, Elion, what they would communicate is, oh, you're, you're, your God is down here. We have the most high God, the one true and living God. There, there's a big distinction there. Now, the preacher, Adrian Rogers, he once had an opportunity to hang out with Muhammad Ali, and they were in a hotel room together. And for many of you, you know, Muhammad Ali was studying Islam, and he was opposed to Christianity, and so he has Adrian Rogers face-to-face and tries to get Adrian Rogers Rogers in a little conundrum. And so he says this, He says, hey, you say that Jesus Christ is the son of God because he was born of a virgin and that he didn't have an earthly father. And then he throws this at him. Well, Adam didn't have a father or a mother, so wouldn't that make Adam more of a son of God than Jesus? Muhammad Ali to to Adrian Rogers. Pastor Rogers responds, Champ, I want you to understand this. Jesus was not the son of God because he was born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin because he was the son of God. There's a big difference between the two. And in a similar way, Jesus is not called son of the most high because he takes a back seat to God. Jesus is called the son of the most high because he is God. And everyone knew that. Everyone. He's making himself out to be God. We're not stoning you for a work that you did. We're not wanting to crucify you for a miracle that you performed. We are stoning you because you are blaspheming and making yourself out to be God. The world might be confused, but the people in the Bible were not. They knew what Jesus was claiming. And we know from Jesus' own mouth. Because he says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, and he doesn't say son, He says, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The actual word there is exegeted him. Jesus has expounded and exegeted and explained God because he steps out and says, I am he. John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen who? The Father. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Make no mistake, Jesus is one. God. No one is higher than Christ. No one is more exalted than Jesus. He is God. He is the Savior. He is supreme. He is divine. But Gabriel continues. He says he is also sovereign. Look there at the text, verse 33. It says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Let me just say this. We We look forward to Christmas. My kids were counting down. It was like first eight days, and then it's three days, and it's one day. And then we got down to the hours, then we got down to the minutes, and then the microseconds. Uh, The kids were looking forward to Christmas. Israel was counting down the time for the Messiah to come. They longed for the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be fulfilled. And then a thousand years earlier from this very day in Bethlehem, God told King David, that the Messiah would come. If you have your Bibles, open them up. I want you to see this for yourselves. In Second Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. This is a significant prophecy in the Scripture. Second Samuel 7 in verse 10. God says this, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not affect them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning die, I will rise up or raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there is so much to that promise there that we can't unpack. But let me just say this. When God gave this prophecy, he made it nearly impossible, impossible, for the Messiah to actually come through the line of David. And you say, how did he do that? Just, just track with me real quick. When you open up the Gospels, how many genealogies do we have? There's two of them. There's one in Matthew, there's one in Luke, and the question we ask is why two different genealogies? Because when you take them together, the genealogies solve one of the biggest problems of the Old Testament. And you say, Dom, what's one of the biggest problems of the Old Testament? It's Jeconiah's curse. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. Thus says Yahweh, Write this man down childless, a man who will not succeed in his days, for no man of his seed will succeed seating on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Right there, Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Jeconiah's curse. You see what the problem is? Have you ever wondered why there are no more kings in Israel? Why why there's not a monarchy in Judah? It's right here. Because of the curse. The bloodline of King David had been cursed through the descendant Jeconiah, and none of Jeconiah's descendants would sit on the throne to rule. So how would the Messiah, the son of David, be able to rule and to reign if God had cursed the bloodline? The solution is, it's amazing. I was spending hours and hours studying this stuff. Matthew's genealogy, listen closely, it follows the bloodline of Jesus back to David. That is the royal line through King Solomon. And that includes Jeconiah, on whom the blood curse was announced. This meant that Jesus had the legal right to the throne, the dynastic right of succession, through Joseph's line going all the way back to David. But because the bloodline was cursed, Luke in his genealogy went back to David through his mother Mary and to David's other son, Nathan, the ancestor of Mary, and that's the bloodline that wasn't cursed. You say, Dom, what what does that mean? It means this, God got around his own curse by having Jesus born of a virgin. You see, the Messiah had to be born born of a virgin. Joseph's bloodline was cursed regarding its royal lineage, but Joseph wasn't the blood father of Jesus. Jesus was conceived in the womb by Mary, by the Holy Spirit, ensuring that this curse would not apply to him So Jesus has the legal right to reign through Joseph and the pure bloodline through Mary's side. And that's why the virgin birth is so essential to our theology and understanding of Christ's divinity. You say, Dom, I was not tracking with you. It's okay, I'm gonna give you the cliff notes right here. Matthew gives us the paternal genealogy through Joseph all the way back to Solomon. Luke gives us the maternal uncursed genealogy of Mary back through Nathan, Solomon's brother. This was the only way Jesus could have the legal right to rule through his stepfather, Joseph, but at the same time have David's blood flowing through his own veins through Mary. I think that's fascinating. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus, we know, is the son of David, a king, but he's not like the other kings Yes, his arrival was prophesied about. His people waited for him to take the throne. He's the one David himself longed for. In fact, look at this passage in Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost, and he's reminding, look, this promise was made to David, but where's David? David is dead. So if David is dead, how is God going to fulfill his promise? This is what Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. Men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He may have even been pointing at it. And so because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of his fruit of his body on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither forsaken to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. You see, Jesus, he's not just like any other king of the Old Testament. He was anointed, yes. He was set aside for God's service, yes. But he wasn't just a king. He was a prophet, and he was a priest, and he was anointed for a special service. And what does that go back to? Just go back to his identity. He is the Savior. God has come to save his people from their sins. And if there's any uncertainty about all this, just flip on over to the book of Revelation. Turn there with me, chapter 22. The beauty of the scriptures and how they all agree. Scripture interpreting scripture. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus says, I, Yeshua, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And what does he say? I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. You see, God broke into the universe 2,000 years ago, and he fulfilled all of his promises in this little baby in the manger. He was not going to go back on his promises. And he did all of this to magnify his name and to bring restoration and redemption and peace to all those who long for his coming. So we've seen Jesus as the Savior. He is supreme. We've seen his divinity, his sovereignty, and just finally now, his eternality. Jesus will reign forever. Verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And let's just take a step back real quick. Gabriel is talking to a teenager. She's 12, 13, 14. How do you think she's processing all this right now? An angel showed up. I mean, that's enough. And then he's dropping all these truth bombs on her. And then he says, your baby will reign forever. Forever. Now, part of me feels like, oh, man, that's just too much for Mary. But you know what else? Mary was a godly woman, and she knew the Scriptures. And so you know what I think? I think when Gabriel told her that, she immediately thought of Daniel chapter 7. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7. While versed in the Scriptures, Mary would have inevitably thought of Daniel's prophecies. And look at verse 13 of Daniel 7. Daniel says, "I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man, was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, that is God the Father, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men's of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one." which will not be destroyed. It doesn't get more comprehensive and extensive than that. All peoples, all nations, Mary, the baby that's in you is going to be the king of it all forever. You know, the, the true measure of someone's greatness is how long that person's memory and reputation last. We just celebrated Sweet Velma's 98th birthday. Man, what what a blessing. But here's the reality. A hundred years from now, you might be remembered by great grandkids. But what about a thousand years from now? It's a sobering thought. Is anyone going to remember you? Probably not. Here we are, 2,000 years later. And Sunday morning... In churches everywhere, people are gathered to worship the Son of David, the Savior, the Great One, because no one comes close to Jesus. He'll never be replaced. He will never be impeached, never recalled. He'll never have a successor. He'll never die. He'll never be overtaken. He will never need or want someone else to fill in for him. He will have an eternal rule. That's why Paul says, it's the name above every names, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he, Jesus Mashiach, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to fast forward one more time and just go to Revelation 11. Turn there and we'll be done. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And what's the response? Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God, the Almighty who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your rage came and the time came for the dead to be judged and to give rewards to your slaves, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and destroy those who destroy the earth. Brothers and sisters, we have an amazing privilege to represent this king. You know, when people make light of Christmas, they treat Jesus nonchalantly. My mom, she probably tripping out on me because I was playing a Doobie Brothers song this morning. Jesus is just all right with me. It's kind of the attitude that America has towards Jesus. He's hippie. He's cool. He's my homeboy. He's little baby Jesus. The world is apathetic, even antagonistic against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The truth is, every one will bow to King Jesus. And we, church, have the amazing privilege to get to know him, to love him, and to serve him, to make much of him, and to proclaim him, and to warn people, Jesus came in his first advent not to bring judgment, not to condemn, John 3.17 says, God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And we celebrate that. But verse 18 says this, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Listen, there are people all across this peninsula even today, that will pass away and they'll step into eternity with a God they did not bow the knee to. And what's waiting for them is an eternity of hell. Christians, we have the gospel message, the Christmas message. God has sent the Savior, Christ, the King, born for you. And so both you and I have the responsibility to let people know that there is salvation in no other name that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise that we've experienced. and That is a promise that we have to continue to proclaim. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to just encourage you to take a second to thank the Lord. He didn't have to reveal himself to you. You could have continued on in your sin, continued in your blindness, in the hardness of your heart. He did not owe you anything. You did not deserve his grace or his love. But he showed that to you. He was merciful, compassionate, generous, gracious. And if you're in Christ this morning, God loves you with a passionate love. He loves you like he loves his son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful that you have come to this earth and you've provided salvation. You've taken our sin and you've punished it on the cross. Lord, you've died in our place. And for that, we are eternally thankful. Oh, Jesus, we recognize this morning that it was your perfect obedience, your perfect faithfulness, your perfect worship that makes us acceptable in the Father's eyes. And so we joyfully proclaim that there is no one greater than you, Jesus. You are the only Savior. There is no one who is more needed than you. There is no one more holy, no one more perfect, no one more pure. Jesus, you are the Son of God. We believe that you are deity, divine. You are the Son of the Most High, and no one owns a position that is higher. Jesus, you are the Messiah and the King, and no one is more worthy of nobility and honor. Oh, Jesus, may we, with the rest of our lives, pour it out in praise and loyalty, and love, and admiration, and worship, because you are so deserving of it. Thank you, Jesus, for Christmas. Thank you that you are the greatest gift anyone can have. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.